0: In April of 2001, a young man would exit his home and seemingly vanish into thin air. Rivers would be checked, ground would be dug up, and hundreds of people would be questioned over the years, but to no avail. In a small town that had, and still would, make headlines for violent and senseless murder, one 20-year-old would be gone without ever making a sound. This is Midwest Mystery Files, episode 16. The Strange Disappearance of Branson Perry. Hello everyone, and welcome to Midwest Mystery Files. I'm your host Jeremiah, with just a few quick things before we start. Midwest Mystery Files is a true crime podcast focused on missing and murdered cases within the Midwestern region of the United States. I can be found on all major podcast platforms, as well as on YouTube with delayed episodes. Social media and contact info will be listed at the end of the episode. One thing I do want to touch on before I start with the case is that I have launched the Patreon page. The money gained will primarily be used for article and record searches. This will help me bring some older and more obscure cases to light by being able to better research and present them, as a number of articles for those types of cases tend to be archived behind paywalls. The rest will be used to pay for my host site and to save for new or replacement equipment. There is currently a $3 tier and a $5 tier, Both tiers get you early access to episodes, plus a monthly bonus episode. Both tiers also get all patrons shoutouts as well as ad-free episodes if the day ever comes that I get sponsored. The $5 tier gets you exclusive voting rights on both bonus episodes, plus cases and case types that we may cover on the main episode. I am currently sitting at only one patron, so I want to thank Zane for his support. You can check it out at www.patreon.com backslash midwestmysteryfiles. Thank you to anyone who checks it out, and even if you don't join, just getting your support by listening and sharing these episodes is much appreciated. Now, without further delay, on to today's case. Throughout the vast expanse of America's Midwestern heartland, there are a great many small towns that seem like they could easily be the town that time forgot. Towns that offer little in the way of business, with most of them closing years ago, but they still have dwindling populations who choose to call them home. Skidmore is one such town. Located in northwestern Missouri, 24 miles south of the Iowa border, and approximately 30 miles east as the crow flies from the Missouri River and Nebraska border, the town only sports approximately 257 residents currently, with the max population never passing 600 throughout its entire existence since it was found in 1840. Traveling along the streets of Skidmore on Google Maps Street View, the town seems quiet and unassuming, sporting older homes and quiet, empty streets. No different than the number of towns you could find by traveling 20 to 30 miles in any direction from the rural Iowa property where I grew up. Despite this perceived quietness and emptiness, Skidmore has developed an almost folktale or urban myth-level reputation for being a violent, scary, and horrifying place. One may think, from some descriptions, that it's the sort of town that a group of unassuming college students would wander into in a horror movie, only to find death and murder awaited them. On Reddit, I've read more than a few alleged experiences of people who were passing through the town only to find hostility and a myriad of bizarre, yet stereotypical, backwoods behavior. Few people from outside of the community are willing to paint the town in a positive light. In reality, Skidmore, Missouri isn't really all that dangerous of a town. All of Notaway County, where Skidmore is located, only has a handful of violent crimes every year, and the town itself sits in the 46th percentile for overall crime, making it about average. In a 2007 interview with CBS News, the Notaway County Sheriff of the time, Ben Epsey, would state quote, It doesn't matter where I go in the U.S., I tell people I live in northwest Missouri, and they say, Oh, do you know where Skidmore is? It's a worldwide thing, really. I say, yes, and then I tell them they should believe about a third of what they see on television and read in books. I bring all of this up, even before focusing on Branson Perry, as I normally would, because to better understand the strangeness of today's case, I do think it's important to understand why Skidmore has such an ominous and exaggerated legend behind it and it seems to be impossible to share one story out of Skidmore without temporarily addressing them all. Despite its size and relative safeness, Skidmore is the home of three distinct murders, two of which were exceedingly violent. The first, and most well-known of these, is the unsolved killing of Ken Rex McElroy. If you could see me, I would most certainly be doing air quotes on the word unsolved, as it's unsolved in the loosest sense of the word, there's a number of works out there that focus on McElroy, and cover his story in great detail. But, in short, Ken McElroy was essentially Skidmore's town bully, who was accused of dozens of felonies, including assault, child molestation, statutory rape, arson, animal cruelty, hog and cattle rustling, and burglary. In 1981, McElroy was convicted of attempted murder in the shooting of the town's 70-year-old grocer, Ernest Beau Kemp. However, McElroy was able to successfully appeal the conviction and was released on bond, after which he began a harassment campaign against Camp and those who were sympathetic to him. On July 10th, 1981, McElroy was shot to death in broad daylight as he sat with his wife in his pickup truck on Skidmore's main street. He was reportedly struck by bullets from at least two different firearms, and witnesses to the crime was a crowd of people estimated as numbering between 30 and 46. Despite an investigation and a large number of witnesses, no conviction has ever been made or a suspect named, as apparently no one saw anything. Nineteen years later, as national fame the town had gained from the killing of Ken McElroy long faded, the town would unfortunately be thrust back into the spotlight under the most gruesome and appalling of circumstances. On October sixteenth, 2000, 19-year-old Wendy Gilwater, was murdered when her boyfriend, Gregory Dragu, began beating and stomping on Wendy inside their home before pouring dishwater liquid down her throat. Dragging her outside and continuing the beating, there are some accounts that state Dragu also tied Wendy to his truck and pulled her behind him, but from what I can tell, this part is unsubstantiated. Regardless, the vicious and ruthless attack left Wendy dead. During the assault outside, a neighbor called the police and Dragoo reportedly waited on the steps of his home for them to arrive. He is now serving a life sentence for the murder of Wendy Gilwater. In 2004, 23-year-old Bobby Joe Stennett, who ran a dog breeding business with her husband in Skidmore, met Lisa Montgomery via an online chat room focused on rat terriers. The two met online and bonded over the fact that they were both pregnant, leading to email exchanges and continued online chatter between the two. While Bobby Joe was indeed inspecting a child, Lisa Montgomery was not. On December 16, 2004, when Bobby Joe was eight months pregnant, Lisa Montgomery would go to Bobby Joe's home posing as a buyer for a new puppy. After arriving, Montgomery would proceed to strangle Bobby Joe to death before cutting her stomach open and taking Bobby Joe's unborn child. It would luckily only be the next day when police would be able to track Montgomery to her home in Kansas. Where they would find the child luckily still alive. The child would be returned to the father, and Montgomery would be convicted on the federal charge of kidnapping resulting in death, earning herself a death sentence in the process. She was executed by a lethal injection in January of 2021. While well, two of these cases have thankfully been solved, and one of them is a case that I don't think anybody is losing any sleep over not being solved, one mystery that contributes itself to the lore and rumors of Skidmore still goes unsolved. A cousin to Wendy Gilwater and a relative via marriage to Bobby Joe Stinton, Branson Perry would go missing from Skidmore in the time between the two heinous murders, not only disappear, but seemingly vanish into thin air with no sign of him to ever be seen again. And that's where we come to now. Branson Kane Perry was born February 24th, 1981 to Bob and Rebecca Perry. There's not much on Branson's life growing up. However, it has been noted that he has one brother, and that he graduated from Notaway Holt High School in 1999, with Rebecca and Bob divorcing shortly after in the year 2000. He's been described as being a kind person who would do anything for anyone. Branson had aspirations of joining the military after high school, but was unable to due to the fact that he suffered from tachycardia, a medical condition that causes an irregularly fast heartbeat. Despite his condition, he managed to obtain a black belt in the martial arts style of Hapkido. Upon graduating high school, Branson would work as a roofer for a time. After losing that job, he would begin working for a traveling petting zoo while he looked for new employment. In April of 2001, Branson would be living with his father in a house located at 304 West Oak Street in Skidmore, While the timeline of Branson's disappearance doesn't officially begin until April 11th, his life would allegedly take a twisted and haunting turn several days earlier. In her book about the murder of Bobby Joe Stennett, Baby Be Mine, author Diane Fanning would report that on April 7th, 2001, Branson visited a neighbor by the name of Jason Bierman, who during the visit allegedly gave Branson an unknown drug. According to Fanning, the effect of the drugs would cause Branson to respond by stripping naked and dancing around Beerman's house. Branson would follow this up by shaving off his pubic hair and participating in sexual activities with Beerman. Reportably, the next day, Perry confessed to his father what had happened. Bob had always suspected that his son may have been gay, but he was reportedly enraged at Beerman for drugging and using his son, and even considered teaching him a lesson although, from what we know, no confrontation ever occurred. Sometime during the next couple of days, Bob Perry would be hospitalized, and on April 11, 2001, Branson would ask his friend Gina to help him clean the house as his father was due to return home in the next couple of days. The timeline of that day is fairly lax and a bit confusing. But on the website, bringbransonhome.wordpress.com, Branson's mother, Rebecca, does her best to recount it as she best understood it. On that day, Gina and Branson were at the home, as well as two mechanics who were working on Bob Perry's vehicle, which was in need of a new alternator. According to Gina, at some point during the day, she saw Branson run into the kitchen and take something out of one of the cabinets. Branson then ran out the back door. When Branson returned, He reportedly refused to tell Gina what he was doing and acted like nothing happened. Later, Gina took a shower and reported when she came out of the bathroom, she saw one of the men that were working on the car going through the cabinets in the kitchen. Upon asking the man what he was looking for, he told her nothing and went back outside. At approximately 3 o'clock p.m., Gina was upstairs when she heard the front porch door shut. She looked out the window and saw Branson heading out of the house. When Gina asked him where he was going, Branson informed her he was going to put jumper cables in the storage shed and would be right back. Sometime later, Gina would realize that Branson had not returned to the house. Gina would search the property for Branson, unable to find him. She would then ask the mechanics if they had seen him after he left the house, and they would also claim to have not seen him. After being unable to locate him, Gina reportedly decided that Branson must have got sidetracked and wandered off to a neighbor's or somewhere else nearby, at which point she finished what she was doing and left the property. The next day on April 12th, Bob Perry was not released from the hospital as initially planned. Upon finding out that Branson hadn't visited Bob the night before, Jo Ann Sennett, Branson's grandmother, opted to stop by the Perry home to check on Branson as he had been visiting his father every night since he entered the hospital. When she got to the house, Joanne reported that all the doors had been left open, and the radio was on, but there was no sign of Branson. She would return to check again Saturday, and find that Branson had still not returned. Joanne began to grow concerned and started making phone calls to his friends, but no one had seen or heard from Branson. Next, Joanne would call Branson's mother, Rebecca, to let her know what was going on, and to ask if she had seen or heard from Branson. Kicking the concern level well up over 100, Rebecca would state that she had not seen or spoken to her son. On April 17, 2001, Bob Perry would be released from the hospital and he and Rebecca would report Branson missing to the police. Almost right away, Bob would note that things were odd, noting that Branson's keys and wallet were still in the home, although he would initially theorize that Branson may have hitchhiked to Kansas City to spend time with friends and get away after the prior experience with Jason Bierman police would proceed to check the property for clues. Upon inspection of the shed, it was found that the jumper cables that Branson was supposed to be taking out of the shed were nowhere to be found, although it has been reported that they had mysteriously reappeared when the shed was looked at two weeks later. While it's most likely that they did, it's unclear if police spoke with the two mechanics who had been working outside the home, but they did speak with Branson's friend Gina, who had been helping Branson around the house the day he disappeared. During the course of the interview, Gina would confess that Branson had been experimenting with drugs and may have owned some local drug dealers' money. A search would be launched that spanned a 15-mile radius in every direction from the Perry home. Fields, oil wells, and even outhouses would all be searched, but not a single sign of Branson could be uncovered. Tips would start to flow in heavy at first, leading to continued searches of rivers and farm ponds and interviews with several people including Branson's drug acquaintances, but nothing concrete or usable would come from any of it. For all intents and purposes, Branson's case was growing cold fast. Investigators and the community would not falter, though, taking the chance to search or investigate whenever possible over the next couple of years. Then, a few years later, a possible lead would emerge. Jack Wayne Rogers, a registered sex offender who was convicted on child pornography charges in 1992, but somehow managed to work as a Presbyterian minister and Boy Scout leader in Fulton, Missouri, was arrested after performing a botched gender reassignment surgery in a Columbia, Missouri hotel room in April of 2003. Upon searching Roger's computer, police found a collection of child pornography, as well as several posts on a message board under the usernames buggerbutt, Oh Hail Satan, and Extreme Body Mods, discussing the cannibalization of the genitals of other men that Roger admitted to castrating. There were several other posts as well where Rogers had claimed to have killed several men. One of these posts in particular caught the eyes of investigators. One post detailed how Rogers had picked up a blonde hitchhiker, raped, tortured, and killed him, and then dumped his body somewhere in the Ozarks. Two investigators The description of the victim in the post bore a strong resemblance to Branson Perry. But when Rogers was questioned about the message board posts, he insisted that they were all made up in deep fantasy. Officers would proceed to search Rogers' home and car, and would find a turtle-clawed necklace similar to one that Branson was known to wear. Despite all of this, nothing was concrete enough to connect Rogers to Branson Perry, and in 2004, Rogers was convicted of assault, illegal surgery, child pornography, and obscenity. He received a 17-year sentence for assault, 7 years for illegal surgery, and 30 years for child pornography and obscenity. This, unfortunately, would be the only major public lead that would ever come about. And unfortunately, the following year, Bob Perry, Branson's father, would pass away without ever finding out what had happened to his son. Over the next several years, more searches would continue. Police would continue to follow up on leads, A billboard would be erected, and Branson's case would be featured on America's Most Wanted. A tip even led to a two-day excavation in Quitman, Missouri in 2009, but all this would fail to generate new leads. Unfortunately, Branson's mother, who had remarried and at the time was known as Rebecca Clino, would fall ill and pass away in February of 2011. Much like Bob before her, she was never able to uncover the truth of what had happened to her son, that spring, on the 10-year anniversary of Branson's disappearance, Notaway County Sheriff Darren White would be asked to speak to the News Tribune, and when asked about the status of the case, he would simply state, quote, We haven't received any tips lately, not since last year. Every now and then, we'll get something. In 2021, despite little movement on Branson's case, now Notaway County Sheriff Randy Strong would show a hint of a bit more optimism, telling news press now, quote, There have been some really good detectives that have worked on it in the past. I know most of them from the Highway Patrol and different agencies that have come in and looked. They've laid a really good foundation, and I think they're on target. It's just up to us to pick up the ball and see where we can take it and finish. Gina, the last known person to see Branson, would also speak out on the 20th anniversary of his disappearance, telling KMBC News 9, quote, Branson doesn't just leave and not come back. That's just not him. The family and I think it needs to stay in the media to let everyone know we haven't given up. We are still looking for him and for answers. This year will mark 21 years since Branson Perry walked outside of his house and virtually disappeared in the thin air. This is honestly the biggest head scratcher I've covered thus far. And even after I began writing this episode, I would constantly stop and go back and look through all my sources, even search for more, just on the off chance that I missed something. But what I've presented here is essentially all I could find. And once again, it was one of those cases where I wasn't sure if I should proceed with such little information, but that's when I always remind myself these are the ones that need the most attention. I hesitate to spend a great deal of time on theories with this particular case, as I feel like there's too little to go on for me to make any sort of educated speculation based on facts known. All I can really say is that it comes down to two choices. Either Branson left of his own volition, just up and walked out the door, and kept going somewhere, but this is something everyone who knew him said was insanely uncharacteristic of him. Or, he met with foul play, and is most likely now deceased. Given the bizarre circumstances here, and the abrupt disappearance, I have to lean towards the latter. That gives us three main things to look at, the first being Jason Bierman. Some folks online have speculated that there was a chance that Bierman could have been concerned that Branson Perry would go to the police and report what had occurred in his home. This may have led to some sort of retaliation, which sounds plausible enough. However, there's not a lot of information available on that particular incident, and it's also unknown to what degree Bearman was involved in the investigation or what his reaction was to the disappearance. In short, I just don't have the information to go on to say anything at all. Next comes Jack Wayne Rogers. This is another strange angle to look at. Rogers made some rather big claims in some of his message board posts, and certainly had a sick proclivity for young boys. However, Going from possession of child pornography to castrating young men and eating their genitals is quite a jump, especially since there doesn't seem to be any trail leading back to any potential victims, and besides Perry, it doesn't appear that the name of any other missing or murdered persons came up to match any of the other alleged victims. Not saying that Rogers didn't commit these acts, it's certainly possible, it just seems unlikely. The necklace being found in his car is indeed quite suspicious and at least one source claims that castration equipment was found in his home. But then again, he was also doing illicit gender reassignment surgery, so it's not surprising that he would have the tools he may have deemed necessary to complete such a job. Lastly, there's a chance that Branson was abducted and met his end at the hands of drug dealers to which he owed money. Gina alleged that Branson had begun experimenting with drugs and had supposedly worked up a substantial debt. According to Gina, Branson was also acting strangely that day. There was the business of Branson taking something out of the cupboard and running outside, only to have one of the mechanics working outside digging through the same cabinet later. Were these men involved with the same people Branson were? Was there some sort of deal that went south going on right before Gina's eyes? Maybe. The two men working on the car have never been named, and it's also unclear as to what level they were questioned or involved in the investigation. Outside of Branson completely disappearing, the whole covered business is definitely an eyebrow raising event, at least in my mind. Whatever the case, or who was involved, Branson going to head out back would have been an ideal time to grab him. April 11th, 2001, is a strange day to me now, as I was turning 14 years old that day. I could never suspect that as my parents were getting me cake and presents, Two other parents were losing their 20-year-old son to circumstances that have yet to be uncovered. In a town known primarily for a few violent and heinous crimes, one of its biggest mysteries would occur in utter silence and with absolutely no one watching. In the time since, both those parents, as well as Joanne Stennett, Branson's grandmother, have passed away without ever getting that joy to celebrate Branson's future birthdays with him or any other major life, events, or milestones. Branson Kane Perry was last seen on April 11, 2001, exiting his home at 304 West Oak Street in Skidmore, Missouri, at approximately 3 p.m. Branson is described as a Caucasian male with blonde hair and blue eyes. He wears his hair very short and occasionally shaves it off. He has a small faint scar on the upper part of his right cheek and a small scar on his left knee. He has a heart racing condition known as tachycardia, at the time of his disappearance, he was five foot nine and 155 pounds. He was reported to be wearing size 32 shorts, a size medium to large t-shirt, and necklaces and leather trinkets or chains with arrowheads on them. If alive today, he would be 41 years old. Foul play is suspected in his disappearance. If you have any information on the disappearance of Branson Perry, please contact the Notaway County Sheriff's Office at 660-582-7451. If you're looking for any additional information, there is a number of online articles and blog posts talking about Branson's case. You can also check out bransonhome.wordpress.com. The book Baby Be Mine by Diane Fanning has a chapter on the case, and the Sundance Channel docuseries No One Saw a Thing also focuses a few episodes on the case. If you wish to let me know what you think happened, have case suggestions or comments, or just want to follow me and the show on social media. I can be found on Instagram at Midwest Mystery Files, Twitter at Files Midwest, and on Facebook by searching for Midwest Mystery Files. You can also email me at MidwestMysteryFilesPod at gmail.com. I do also post photos and sometimes links relevant to each case on social media, mainly Facebook and Instagram. Lastly, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, and now Spotify, please feel free to rate and review the show. This helps make the show more visible in searches and, more importantly, helps bring attention to the cases I cover. Thank you to all who have done so already. Take care, everyone, and I will see you all next time.